Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome to the Friday Five, my weekly roundup of topicality, news and views from the wonderful world of well-being. And this week, it's time for something a little different. Last Sunday, I was delighted to be back at the Open Air Chalk Valley History Festival, always a highlight of the year now as a truly outstanding and really fun family literary festival with a history focus. Now, there's always a great mix of speakers and my Lizard Wellbeing magazine has, over the years, been an active supporter and sponsor as the festival is owned by a charity, the Chalk Valley History Trust, which supports educational programmes for schools and is a really good thing. Now, before the festival starts, I'm sent a list of the talks and the speakers who are coming and I'm asked which event I would like my magazine to sponsor. And of course, as my magazine team and I focus so much on botanical research and inspiration inspirational women and ways to live well for longer, especially as we enter our midlife and beyond, I always look for a talk and a speaker who resonates with the ethos of my magazine. And that's when this year I spied Christian Lamb, a world-class plantswoman, extremely accomplished World War II veteran and a centenarian well-being warrior to boot. So, Well, the choice for me was pretty obvious. And we're both even Admiral's daughters as well. So there you go. Well, Christian worked during the war as a leading wren, safeguarding seafaring state secrets during the war. And then once she retired and was widowed, she didn't hang up her boots. No, she set about her new career as a book author. She published her first fascinating and highly readable book on plants at the age of 80. She has since published four more during her 80s and 90s. And her fifth book, Beyond the Sea, A Wren at War, is due to be published next month, close to her 101st birthday. She says, I actually got rather bored of being 99 and I look forward to being 100. But when I reached 100, I found it rather common, so I'm rather looking forward to reaching 101. 
She is extraordinary, and I had the pleasure of introducing her onto the stage to give her talk at the Chalk Valley History Festival. And I just couldn't resist asking her if she'd mind being interviewed with a bit of chat to share with the rest of my Lazar Wellbeing community, to which she kindly agreed. So before I share this very special recording, I should say that it was recorded in a tent at the festival right after Christian's talk and book signing. And at the age of 100, her voice is obviously a little bit softer than mine. And there's also a patch towards the end when the historical reenactment guys uh, seem to be having a bit of a battle outside the tent. But all in all, I do hope that you enjoy taking a listen to the extraordinary life and times of a genuine well-being warrior, Christian Lamb. So Christian, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time. I heard you speak at the Chalk Valley History Festival and it's hard to know where to begin really because your career has been so long lived and so varied. I'm very interested in the fact that you started your working life so young because you went to France shortly after leaving school and then your father called you back because the war had started, is that right? Yes, absolutely right. And of course, I had no idea what war would involve. So it wasn't until I came back that I had a little time to think about it. Decided, of course, I couldn't go to Oxford as I'd been planning. That must be put off. And I'd have to do something to do my bit, as it was all called in those days. So I cast about a bit, and then I had found that the Wrens was what I thought would suit me, especially my father was in the Navy, and so one had felt very strongly about it. And you spoke about how, obviously, with the war effort, you ended up playing quite a strategic role up in London, mapping and plotting. That must have been just the most extraordinary thing, to be aware of where all the U-boats were in the Atlantic and to be part of that. Were you very much involved with everything that was going on? And, and how did how did you feel to, to be part of that as such a young woman? I mean, you were, what, age 20? Well, I was 20 when I went to run the degaussing range on the Thames at um, East Tilbury. That was a very interesting experience, and I felt that I was really helping to um, promote the safety of sailors and people, because it was to spend, it was to to measure the uh, magnetic emission of every ship, and every ship that came in or out of the the Thames, and in fact every single um, port in, 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 in Britain eventually. This was the first one they'd had. And um, so we had this range which was laid across the Thames, and every ship had to go across it when it was measured, and they would have a scientific officer who would then translate what had to be done to correct this, this um, emission, which was to put a wire right round the ship um, uh, several electric wires and then the amount of electricity had to be measured to match the emission of the uh, magnetic. So that was, I felt, a useful, life-saving, helpful job. I quite enjoyed that. And that was really to protect the ships from the mines that were yes, being laid by, exactly. by by the enemy coming in? And, and, and how, how, they, oh, did they? Or, or, or mine laying. Gosh, they, they, they dropped mines by parachute into the Thames, did yes. they, to, to try and blow our ships up? Yeah. Not only in the Thames, but all other harbours that had slightly um, shallow water enough for them to make worthwhile dropping the bombs in them. You spoke about how when you were young living in London, 
you literally would look up in the skies and see the Battle of Britain going on above you. I mean, I think these days it's hard to imagine that as civilians we'd be walking the streets and looking up and seeing fighter planes literally having a, a, a dogfight above us. It, is quite, it was quite extraordinary. And also the most extraordinary thing was that we weren't really frightened. We knew, of course, we were all in danger, but one got so used to it that you didn't bother to think about, oh, I must protect myself. I mean, we were sent home every day uh, by four o'clock to make sure we were safe. But we didn't bother. We went to the theatre, we went to the cinema, went to parties, all sorts of things. Rather do that than sit around doing nothing at home. That is just an. Ex- I guess that's an example of the wartime spirit, and then of course leading on from the Battle of Britain, we then had the Blitz, which you lived through in London. The Blitz was was very interesting also because of course you got absolutely used to that as well. Most people in London went down to the underground at night, and if you wanted to catch a train home after a theatre, which you very often did, it was quite a job to find a train. Otherwise, the whole dockyard, the whole place was full of people having parties and children screaming and children being made to go to bed and, you know, there was a complete chaos down there. But it was everybody was down there safer. Yes. Now, as I say, you were very young. You had your 21st birthday when you were living in London and you had a slightly unusual 21st birthday party, is that right? It was a disgraceful behaviour, really. And it was, I, do you want me to tell you about it? I'd love it? you to tell me. Well, it was only just about this, we had this very disagreeable landlord who looked after us. He, he's the landlord of the uh, sort of um, presbytery, which was where the, 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 um, the vicar lived in his vicarage. And we, the wrens were billeted there. And it was always cold. We never had enough to eat. We were always cold. And this man who was in charge of it all, who was in, sort of our boss, really, down there. He was the one who um, had a sort of goiter, which was very obvious and rather unpleasant looking. And so he had this operation, which, um, we were, as I was saying before, we all said every time we saw him, we were, goodness sake, I wish they'd take him away and cut his throat. <gasps> and the awful thing was that that's exactly what they did. No. But they didn't really mean to do that. They, they had this operation on his the goiter and it killed him just by un, bad luck, really. I don't know what sort of operation it was anyway. Um, and then, of course, I was at work the day he died and they rang me up from the hospital because we didn't have a telephone at the vicarage. Didn't have telephones in those days anywhere. So he rang me up at the at the at my work and asked me if I would go and tell his wife that he'd been killed during the operation. So I felt I must put on my hat for this. So I put on my hat and went back to the vicarage and made her sit down and told her this terrible news. She didn't seem too despondent actually, because I don't think she liked him much anyway. I don't know, but I just feel didn't feel what the major misery I might have caused. And then, of course, it happens to be my 21st birthday that very day. And, of course, we had quite a few friends coming in with bottles of this and that, sailors, soldiers. The whole place was, was full of the coal house fort, had every sort of person. And we had a few friends, so they all came and bring. And we were drinking around the place, and, and the one young man had just thought he was so brilliantly funny because he'd decided to hold his glass up and say, up spirits. Then he thought his wit was so great with the body next to him on the table that um, 
he giggled terribly and everybody else collapsed, you know. It was really dreadful. And his wife, who was at the party too, I forget, she just, I think I put in a book, she just slivered silently to the floor or something. So the, the, the body of your landlord was in the coffin? Yes, in, on the in, piano. On the piano while you were having your 21st birthday party? Yes, exactly. There wasn't another room in the house that was suitable for a party, you see. <laughs> you had to have it in the house. I mean, these were just extraordinary times, well, weren't they? Were, they? but I did feel we were really behaving extremely badly. Right. And we really, yes. only because we had so much to drink and nothing <laughs> right. else to do. And it was my birthday that we allowed it to happen. Indeed. Well, moving on from that, you then went... Were you down in Plymouth when you met your husband, who was no, also in a naval officer? In Belfast. Yes. Right. Well, and he was a naval officer, was he? Yes. He was a first lieutenant of HMS Oraby, which was the fleet destroyer, which was in one of the groups that were anti-U-boat groups in the Atlantic. And he came into Belfast, where quite a few ships came in for storm damage repairs. The weather in the Atlantic was unbelievably terrible, unbelievably terrible all the time. And so this, and the moment where we had, he was there for 10 days, and I think I told you, we got engaged at the last minute, just about. And then, of course, um, we had the most enormous party on board that everybody came to, and very jolly and so on. And then almost the next day, he sailed back off to the Atlantic and they, they took charge of this. Well, he wasn't in charge. He was only the first lieutenant, but he, they, they, they joined their escort group of, of um, uh, destroyers and things to protect the particular convoy, which happened to be called ONS-5. ONS were all slow convoys, and you, they, the fastest ship was the one that chose the, for the speed of the whole convoy. This happened to be five knots, very slow. And then, of course, they went straight out into the Atlantic, where the weather was absolutely appalling, and this, 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 the convoy almost scattered. They had to be rounded up again and kept in. And then, of course, there were something like 40 U-boats attacking them. And um, they had several other groups of, of destroyers defending them as well. But it just was the most tremendous battle, which went on for nearly a week. And then when they got to the middle of the Atlantic, where there was a gap, no aircraft could protect them. They couldn't have any air, aircraft support at all. So for that bit, until Canada could help from the other side, they had no escorts from the air. So the, the battle just went on, and um, many of the ships, they lost. I think they lost 12 out of the convoy. And, um, but luckily, we managed to sink several U-boats. And um, what else? Let me and and your, your husband, or fiancé, as he was then, yes. was, was safe and made it safely through to America. His, his ship rammed the U-boat and um, cut it in half, more or less, luckily. So it, it, they didn't actually manage to sink it, but another another destroyer finished it off, and he, they lost their bows, and so they had to go very slow pace, about twelve knots, to get back to Canada or America, the other side, for safety. And of course, I was plotting this in the plotting room in Belfast, so I knew exactly what was going on, and all my friends kept on saying, "Don't stay there, come out." But I couldn't leave, obviously. I just secured this man. I wasn't going to lose him. 
<laughs> you say you just secured him. How long had you known him before you got engaged? Ten days. Ten days. And how long were you then married? We were married that autumn and said we were married in December. This was in April we got engaged. And um, we had great difficulty, of course, because my, my parents and his parents, we tried to make them meet. And it wasn't a great success. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Well, I don't think they liked each other much. <laughs> anyway, it didn't really matter because John had said that he was going to have a boiler clean in HMS Orbit a week before Christmas. So he would probably have a week's leave. So my mother said, right, chose the date for the wedding and made all the arrangements. Mm -hmm. We were married in London at St. James's Spanish Place. And um, I'm a Catholic, you see, so it was a Catholic church. Yeah. And um, well, all our relations came that wanted to anyway. And then how long were you married for? How long was your marriage? Well, I suppose it was getting on for 50 years, really. I can't remember exactly how many, because John died, um, I can't remember when now, it's so awful, isn't it? I know it was, it was um, a long time before, before I died, anyway. And by that time, um, he was, you know, he was ill for quite a bit. Mm. But then um, I decided that I couldn't just sit about and do nothing, so I then went on with various things like gardening and Indeed. it was the garden that was what really kept me busy. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So having had this extraordinarily distinguished career in the Wrens, in the Royal Navy, bringing up your three children, your husband went on, he became a rear admiral, you obviously traveled the globe. Then as a widow, you have completely transformed your life. You wrote your first book at the age of 80. 
You've written four in total, is that right? With the fifth one, I think, coming out this summer. Yes, that's right. Well, the reason I wrote the book was because I had found that my neighbour, I may tell you, had um, inherited. She'd been a wren too, but um, after the war, her parents died and left her this wonderful estate which had this 300-year-old garden in it full of the most wonderful plants which had been introduced from her ancestors. And then many of them had lost their labels, so we'd have to frequently send them up to queue for identification, plants and so on. Mm. And um, I I helped her to restore the garden, not as a, a useful person, because I knew nothing about gardening, or at least not a lot, a lot. But I learned a great deal from her garden, which was full of these wonderful plants. And so I did that for 20 years. And then when she died, I decided to completely redo my own garden, which was about a third of an acre. I couldn't grow anything big, but anything that I thought was interesting and unusual and unknown, I would plant. So I, I cleared my garden of everything that was in it, which wasn't much anyway. And then I started to plant the whole thing. Most people who plan a garden have things like, um, you know, they make plans with the square, what you call those things, you know, with the measure. Oh, oh like a little um, measuring stick or whatever exactly. to, to kind of measure it out and lay it out very formally. Exactly. So I did nothing like that, but I, because it was all a question of plants. Whatever the plant was, I wanted to put it somewhere. And I had particular mania for camellias because in this garden where I had spent so many years they had the most wonderful collection of different kinds of camellias and hedges of them really wonderful they make very good hedges they have they're very sort of um useful plants they have always these lovely shiny evergreen leaves anyway and then the rest of the year they flower any time from October to May really so winter sort of flowering. Wonderful flowers, very, very big, quite small, kind of different formal. And then they can have a very upright one which makes a wonderful hedge, or another one which has sort of spread around an evening dress on the ground. A wonderful variety of plants. I think it must be perhaps a little bit because of your intrepid seafaring background that you took off to find a particular gardenia. Is that right, that only grows in one place in the Seychelles? Tell me about that. Well, I've forgotten very much about that, but I, I did actually, my, my second book was all about the cruises that I went on. I went on 14 different cruises, and they were always to look for a certain plant, whatever it was, and um, to see where it growed, what conditions it liked, and that sort of thing. That, that was the most important thing about it. And so I, I learned all that, and then I decided, having um, done 10 years of making my garden, I decided to write a book about it. I'd never written a book before, but I thought if I just tell it like a story, it'll have to be due. So I did that, yeah. and that was quite fun. And to find this particular gardenia, didn't you have to climb a mountain to go and, to go and get it? I described it as being, yes. having to climb a mountain. Actually, it was really quite a hill. But it was very steep and rocky. And although I wasn't as old as I am now, I wasn't in my first youth by any means. I must have been well over 80, I imagine. Forget exactly. And this was in the Seychelles, was it? Yes. Yeah. 
And you talk about in the book, which I, your books are all absolutely riveting, and you talk about your favourite plants like camellias and gardenias, and also some that you're not so fond of. I mean, the, the poor old fuchsia doesn't get much love, does it? No, I didn't like most fuchsias. I don't think I like any fuchsias, really. They sort of grow in a tiresome way. <laughs> but um, I like plants. I like them all to do about four things. Mm. They have to have like, good flowers, good leaves, be a nice shape, and um, I forget what else they have to do, but I put it in the book anyway, yes. so you can always read it. <laughs> we certainly will. So from writing books, uh, starting at the age of 80, and you're now 100, soon to be 101, I gather you then took up something else at the age of 98. You decided that you would like to be a painter. Well, you see, I, having lived in Cornwall for 50 years, I decided quite a long time after John died, but the children have an awful job getting down to see me, my children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and they all had jobs, so I decided to go back to London, where I was very happy anyway. And having had two jobs in London with, beside the river, I passionately wanted to live beside the river again. So I asked Felicity, my daughter, and my two boys, but particularly her, because she lived near London, to see if she could find me a flat by the river. So every now and again, she would send me a, a, a one to go up and see, and it took us a year eventually to find it, but it's, it's absolutely perfect. Mm. Now, it, it has the most wonderful view of the river, great big glass windows, like French windows, onto a little balcony, and there's the river. So do you have the right light, then, for painting? Well, I, I actually um, only paint in particular one chair because I have this really amusing Russian girl who teaches me. She comes to see me every week, once a week, two-hour lesson, and um, she tells me every blob, what, what you do, what every paintbrush has to do, every little brush stroke, which one to use for everything. She's absolutely brilliant, and I couldn't do it without her at all, so I'm not really an artist, I'm just a copycat of her. But I've got a great many paintings, and I'm not quite sure what to do with them. I did one Christmas two years ago. I decided to give one each to all of my 15 great-grandchildren so they could all come and choose them. So they did that. Now I've got still more. I'm thinking what to do with them next. You shall have to have an exhibition to go with your next book launch. Yeah, that's a good idea. Do you think that's the secret to, to staying well for longer, is to keep almost kind of reinventing yourself? You're always learning new things and developing, not being afraid to take on something new? Well, I just can't bear having nothing to do. So whatever I'm doing has got to be fun and enjoyable and, and fascinating and possibly learning interesting too. I love the backgrounds of things, going up to libraries and digging in the background of everything. Of course, now everybody has telephones. They only have to ask for a telephone something, and there's the answer. Yes. Now, I have a well-being magazine, and I can't let you go without asking just a few of your well-being secrets. When you get up in the morning, do you have a particular routine? Do you have a sort of health and fitness regime, for example? Well, when I get up in the morning, which is usually about past eight, um, but on days when I've got something like painting, I do it maybe eight o'clock. Um, and then I get up and I have a sort of shower, not exactly a shower, a sort of wash and everything. And um, then I do my exercises, which take about um, 10 minutes, I suppose. I may have told you perhaps about my physio, who was a very good girl. And um, when I 
I was perfectly all right when I went up to London. First, Felicity found me the flat, and I was there for several years before I fell over, unfortunately, downstairs backwards and cracked a great many bones. Since when I've never been a human being since. I'm a sort of wreck. So anyway, um, with all these disadvantages, it's, it's quite difficult. So I had this nice physio who came to see me. She was called Harriet. And she said to me, the first thing she said was, everything you've been doing up till now has been making it worse. So you should do these exercises every half hour. I said, every half hour, I can't do that. I'll do them as often as possible. She said, I shall come back in a fortnight and see if you're if you made any progress. So she came back in a fortnight and made quite a bit of progress, not every half hour by any means, but every now and again, quite often. And so um, then after that, she said, now you've got to have a special chair, which I'm going to bring you to, which will cost you nothing. It's going to be there for you to sit in. And its whole design is to be uncomfortable. <laughs> so, as usual. So all right, all right, I'll do that. And so then, um, she said, I must do, also learn how to do the stairs. So she said, oh, I can't do the stairs. Too dangerous. No, no, I to do them. So she took me out to the stairs. I've got one flight, which um, is quite steep, but um, one bar to hold on to. And so she said she was going to get them to push up another rail the other side for safety, which she did, measuring me so they were exactly the same right height and everything. So she did that. And then... Um, I do her I do her exercises every day and I and and I think she said after that, I don't think I can teach you anything else now, so goodbye. <laughs> that was a good sign off. I did hear that you make yourself get up and go up and down the stairs three times every morning. Do you I mean you do that yes. every morning, do you? No, I don't do that. I do the exercises first thing in the morning and then I have read the paper and that sort of thing. Then I make myself go for a walk, which is absolute hell. It hurts me on knees. My knees hate it, but I go for a walk around the garden. My carer comes with me. We go for about half an hour. Sometimes we go and sit in the sun. This lovely garden round where we live, so we're very, very lucky. That's quite fun. Then I come back and we have lunch, and in the afternoon I, I do whatever I'm feeling like, particularly. And then um, I, I make myself do the stairs twice, up and down, up and down, um, in the afternoon. That's all. Well, it sounds as if it's fitness, physical, and fitness for the brain that's keeping you active. And do you have any more ambitions? You're 101 next month. What's left on your agenda to achieve? I'm only really looking forward to what 101 brings. I really don't know. I've never been a 101 before, so I'm waiting to see what will happen. And, and maybe I shall, I shall continue writing as I'm enjoying writing this book. My next book is going to be called um, a Century in Hand. I think that's quite a good name for it. I think it's a very good name. And I'm in my 50s, and I know a lot of my listeners and readers are also around a similar age to me. I think it's so empowering to listen to you because I kind of feel that I'm halfway there. What would you say to me and to my listeners of a similar age looking back? Is there something that you would have said to yourself at, at 50? in terms of guidance or encouragement? Well, don't do anything boring. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy what you're going to do. Whatever you do, enjoy it. Thank so, you. Thank you so much. 
Well, I do hope that you enjoyed that listen and apologies again for the lesser sound quality. But I thought it was worth recording a snippet of an extraordinary life lived in very different and extraordinary times. And a woman very much of her own mind who wants to decide precisely how she lives and what she does or doesn't do each day. I love the fact that she walks up and down the stairs every day just to stay fit and mobile. That's what she's decided, even when she doesn't actually feel like it. I think we have all been there. And actually, on a personal note, I was especially pleased to speak to Christian, who will shortly turn 101. I'm now in my 50s, and I've said for a while now that this is my second half and a second chance to get on with life in a fresh and new and positive way, stronger, fitter, more settled, and hopefully happier than ever before. And so it was really nice to meet a living example of someone almost twice my advanced age leading from the front. So thank you, Christian. Well, that is it from me for this week. I hope you've enjoyed something a little bit different today. I'll be back with you again next week. So until then, go well. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.